Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. My name is Geert, and I am your host for today on NBN's Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery podcast. We're glad to have Professor Anita Hardin with us today to discuss her recent book, Chemical Youth, Navigating Uncertainty in Search of the Good Life. Welcome, Anita. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to come. Chemical Youth is available as a Creative Commons publication, and it came out just last October, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, Anita herself is a professor at the University of Amsterdam, Netherlands, in the Anthropology of Care and Health. The Chemical Youth book is actually a condensation of years of collaborative ethnographic research spread over at least five countries and four continents. And its results go way beyond this tome as there is an elaborate website, many academic publications by Anita and the other researchers. Its approach, its contents might be boiled down to understanding young people's chemical practices, which is then illustrated by unique personal stories from their everyday lives. Now, Anita, these chemical practices, as they are called in the in the tome, could you explain to our listeners what is meant by that and why you found it so urgent to take up this specific approach? Yes, thank you, Geert, for asking that. So perhaps uh, to explain why I thought it was important, I should go back to the beginning of the book and the kitchen table where I was discussing with a friend who came to visit uh, about her son traveling in Australia. And um, he had written to her, his mother, that the funds were finished and he needed some income So he thought of joining a clinical trial uh, as a volunteer. And the mother was worried and asked me, should he do this? And then my daughter, who was also at the table, said, but mom, I think that hospital is much safer than what he does in Amsterdam. So then I started probing. So what do you do with chemicals in Amsterdam? And that's when I realized that there's so much kind of experimenting with chemicals going on and I thought through a project which focuses on on chemical practices. And in anthropology, we're really interested in practices, everyday kind of routine engagements, uh, because we learn a lot about what's going on in life if you look into people's practices. So I thought, well, maybe my next project should be about chemical practices of young people. Yeah, that that makes sense. That that definitely makes sense. Um, And and maybe... To uh, clarify to the listeners, so chemicals in Amsterdam, of course, sounds uh, sounds as if it's just about narcotics, but actually uh, these chemical practices are uh, they they encompass uh, narcotics, cosmetics, uh, foods, beverages in all their forms, uh, pharmaceuticals, and and how all these uh, young people over the different continents how they integrate these into their into their lives and. Um, Anita, I, I was wondering, what do you feel you would have missed if you had perhaps only focused on one of these categories? Yeah, so as, a, as an anthropologist, and, and uh, my research has been about anthropology of care and the body, I thought it best to stay, take a step back and look at all the chemical engagements of young people and not start from a certain problem, problem. Uh, what is perceived societally to be a problem, which is drug use. 
So I was very interested in looking at a whole range of chemicals. I think what I would have missed is all the um, kind of purposes for which young people engage with chemicals beyond kind of seeking pleasure or recreation. So uh, the study revealed a lot of different reasons for using chemical products. Um, and basically uh, in two broad categories to, to kind of become more productive at work. You wouldn't think of that immediately when you think about chemical use, as well as to kind of enhance your life. Yeah, yeah, I figure, I think you, you list those, uh, those different purposes perfectly. Also, also the, um, the different sections and different chapters on, on um, how sexuality and, and gender uh, is enhanced or changed and how this is not just a niche practice, but you actually realize that, that most of us, if not all of us, one way or another use cosmetics or pharmaceuticals or, or food supplements to also um, deepen this dimension of our lives. I, I also... Um, reading the book, I found that there is so much creativity and experimentation in in the way these these youths deal with with chemicals. Uh, it's off label use, combinations, and then also the the subsequent online sharing or face to face sharing of experiences. Um, everything to attain some desired state of being. Uh, what story of combined chemicals or, or combined chemical practices was, was most unexpected to you? That's a very interesting question. Well, I can, give, I can give an example myself. I was very much intrigued by the, um, the use of, of the soda Sprite in, in different cases where certain um, properties were attributed to Sprite, which I had never thought of it, uh, before. Yeah, maybe maybe I learned maybe the most surprising findings in general were in the cities in Indonesia where this story about Sprite comes from. Then the in, they use Sprite to enhance the efficacy of some powerful painkillers to make you feel better uh, or hot food. I hadn't thought of that before starting the research that this might occur and. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of mixing in general, mixing of chemicals, and especially indeed in our Indonesian sites. I guess overall what the research made me realize is that I like the emphasis you you had for creativity, is how creative young people are in generating effects of chemicals. So uh, in the book... Throughout the book, actually, we we come back to different aspects of making chemical effects. And these are trying out different products and see what they do for you or indeed mixing them or um, um, uh, even creating new chemicals. That's maybe also a surprising part for me is that a lot of young people were involved in, in making chemicals and even selling them. So there's a whole cycle of trying out, tinkering, mixing, uh, substituting, if you don't like the effects, sharing information, but also even going a step further and making new chemicals and selling them uh, in order to have an income. 
Do you have uh, an example of this this chemical making, this chemical production, um, and, and maybe then be beyond narcotics? Yes. So in in uh, Indonesia, young people are very very constrained in their kind of chemical trying out because of the war on drugs, and they uh, they fear being caught caught if they smoke uh, marijuana because it smells. It's easy to be found if you're doing this. So the substitution process there is to use ordinary tobacco instead of cannabis and then to add some synthetic cannabinoids that they buy online from China. And these kind of combinations are then sold online uh, to their peers um, as, as uh, well, yeah, a, a cigarette or you can, as, yeah, as a form of cigarettes with added effects. Yeah, yeah, I figure. That's in the chapter. So that's in the chapter on on chemical breath, where we go into this kind of yeah, appropriating of, of of different kinds of chemicals and making them into something new. Yeah, it's it's intriguing indeed. Also, in um, because in the same chapter you speak about uh, about France and about all these discourses, uh, these marketing discourses around around cigarettes that that they basically. Uh, obtain this whole life of their own these these uh, tobacco products it's, yeah. it's intriguing how how thick the story around uh, a certain cigarette then becomes maybe um particularly with the pharmaceuticals but but also with with cosmetics and and food supplements to a certain degree once this um this chemical hits the market so to say uh, even if there have been these stringent checks by by regulatory bodies or, or pharmaceutical companies and their scientists or the like, there tend to be um, many many unforeseen situations. I would say where the chemicals used and what we just discussed. What would you say might be improved about this regulatory process or this pharmaceutical scientific testing? Um, may, maybe, for instance, paying more attention to the the post market period yeah yeah with um this was a key issue for for our whole research team the um chemical use the uh, researchers that worked with me on all of these case studies and we were struck by the difference in regulatory strategies across the different kinds of chemicals that we were studying so you mentioned the e-cigarettes um, and if you contrast the e-cigarettes with pharmaceuticals, it's amazing how pharmaceuticals actually need to be tested quite well before they come on the market. And even then, we're sometimes worried about safety, but you need to present results from clinical trials, which then uh, at least uh, have some kind of obstacle before you can get a product onto the market. Uh, whereas with e-cigarettes, they're seen to be generally safe and, pharma and companies can put all kinds of mixtures of chemicals in e-cigarettes on the market without much scrutiny until a problem occurs. Um, so with pharmaceuticals, problems occur, but at least we have some baseline data on evidence, clinical evidence on what their safety profiles are. But with other products, also supplements, there's very little kind of scrutiny of what these chemicals do before they come on the market. With pharmaceuticals, um, the problem is not so much 
their safety profiles, but uh, you described that for, for the chemical sexualities, the ways in which young people use them, appropriate them for their own purposes. So we see with the uh, different hormones which are on the market, which actually have been studied extensively. And uh, although from a women's health perspective, I've always been concerned about their side effects. Generally, they're quite safe, but they are used in ways that are not according to um, the official indication for which they're on the market. So they're used in very, very, very high dosages to, uh, um, for transgender processes to, to grow breasts, as we describe in the chemical sexualities chapter. And of course, those very high dosages are, are dangerous. With painkillers, very potent painkillers, uh, we describe in the chemical high chapter how the problem is that these um, are still on the market, even though they can make people addicted to them, as we've seen with the opioid crisis in the U.S. But in Indonesia, there's very, very strong painkillers like tramadol on the market, and they can be bought over the counter in pharmacies. So young people think these, think these are just painkillers, and they use them to feel high and become addicted. Um, so the problem is more downstream when they're on the market and how they are accessible uh, and how they are used for different reasons in the case of pharmaceuticals. Yeah, it's, it's intriguing. I, I, I guess then, then at least part of the, the how would you say, the, yeah, the, the, the burden for this falls on uh, harm reduction organizations take, taking care of this post post-market introduction period to, to, to monitor and stuff. Um, yeah, that, because that's, it's... That, yeah, that's a very, very good point to highlight that <clears throat> we, we start the book with Amsterdam where harm reduction in terms of protecting uh, young people who use all kinds of chemicals or drugs to feel good or to feel high or for recreation is, is quite strong. And there, there's a lot of information provision through all kinds of channels through which young people are informed about risks. And we actually promote in the book this approach because we see elsewhere that there's a lot of experimentation with, with pharmaceuticals, especially uh, like Indonesia, where the, it's so, the war on drug is so uh, extreme. Uh, young people like taking these pharmaceuticals over the counter. And... Um, they don't know that they can be addictive. They're not informed about this because harm reduction is very underdeveloped. So I fully agree. I think harm reduction is what we need. Uh, and harm reduction needs to be attuned to uh, what's actually going on in, in youth communities and aware also that young people are creative and they keep on trying out new things. So this is where harm reduction in Amsterdam is very strong because it has a lot of peer organizations that know what's going on and actually examine what's going on in order to respond rapidly to new trends. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating indeed. Um, it's, it's, it's intriguing to see how they, they monitor online and offline and are actually integrated into, uh, well, youth culture, so to say. Let me see. So um, maybe on a bit, bit, bit of larger scale, there's, there seems to be this certain divide in the, in the subpopulations sub that you focused on. Um, roughly, you might say that there's uh, the Western countries and then the, the maybe up, upcoming uh, countries, particularly 
the two Southeast Asian countries, so uh, Indonesia and Philippines. Um, and of course, there is this geographical divide between them, but uh, also in, in other aspects such as economics and in terms of culture. And in terms of the meaning-making processes around the chemicals that you encountered, did you also encounter this, this duality between developed and, and, and uh, the upcoming countries, or, or is that too short-sighted? Yeah, that's such a good question. So when I set up the study, um, the idea was indeed to compare settings where I expected the problems to be bigger, so Indonesia and the Philippines, because of weak regulation and kind of uh, lack of harm reduction with um, France and the Netherlands. Although within Europe, I still felt that France was not that supportive for harm reduction as compared with the Netherlands. So the idea was that there's a difference in precarity between those countries. And actually, to our surprise, when we were analyzing those case studies, those multitude of case studies across the different cities in the different countries, we realized that actually young people are facing similar kinds of precarity in all those sites. So um, um, it's not as if they're protected in the North or in, in Europe and the US and not protected in, in Asia. Um, they are putting themselves at risk for chemical harm in all cities because they are trying to, um, this is why the book is called uh, In Search of a Good Life. They're kind of seeking to live a good life or they're trying to meet their aspirations. Whereas the future for young people all over the world is quite uncertain. So um, in Amsterdam, in, in Paris, but also in, in the US, as in the Indonesian cities, it's very hard to get um, jobs for young people. And they, they usually have temporary jobs and not so much protection and they have to work really hard. And working hard is one of the reasons that they use a lot of chemicals. And that kind of using chemicals to be able to work hard is a common feature. Um, so the regulations for chemical safety are actually also similarly weak across the different countries. Uh, so e-cigarettes can harm young people's lungs because they're not properly scrutinized before they come on the market. And that's the same in all the countries. So we, we ended up realizing that the, the precarity that is in, that's reflected in how young people use chemicals is very similar. And the lack of regulatory protection of young people's kind of chemical lives is also very similar globally. So young people are at risk of chemical harm everywhere. Uh, but then, of course, the extent of precarity could differ. differ. So um, one of our case studies is about young women working in karaoke bars in uh, uh, seaside communities in South uh, Sulawesi. Uh, uh, they are very, very poor and they have to work, do sex work to make a living. And they use all kinds of chemical whiteners in order to be attractive to their 
their clients and they have to drink beer because they earn by the bottle of beer that, that their client drinks and buys for them. So this, of course, is a, is a labor condition that's so much more precarious than what we would see in Amsterdam. So the, the extent to which they are at risk is bigger. But it's a similar pattern. Yeah, I figure. I figure. I, f- I find the chapter on the skin whitening practices uh, particularly, how would you say that, unfamiliar to uh, to uh, my own experiences. I would say. Yes. Yeah. The skin skin uh, the use of skin whiteners in in the Indonesia and the Philippines. Yeah. Yeah. So, indeed. So there, the, you asked at the beginning of the talk about unexpected. I had not expected work to be such an important reason to use skin whitener. So uh, throughout, through the project, I realized how important working in the service sector is for young people, especially in Indonesia and the Philippines, where the service sector is growing very rapidly, and that is working in restaurants, bars, malls, shopping centers, hotels. Uh, and there... Uh, we found that it's a kind of unspoken requirement that you have to have a whiter skin. So that kind of work pressure to use skin whiteners is, was, was really a, a novel finding for me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and also, as, a, as living in Europe, I, I always feel rather protected by all these different kinds of regulation. But a few years ago, I heard that, for instance, the, the sunscreen, the sunblock that we tend to use has never been tested beyond um, several weeks of uh, continuous use. Uh, those kind of um, those kind of facts, they are they're actually quite shocking because sunscreen is sort of a, well, it's between a pharmaceutical and a cosmetic, I would say. Yeah, that, uh, quite a strong... that, yeah that, that brings, that, that, yeah, that's indeed the theme of, of uneven regulation. I was also, I had done a lot of work on pharmaceuticals before, but kind of going into the regulatory measures for all of these different chemical categories, I was quite shocked indeed with the cosmetics, how little regulation there really is, how little we know. There's there's just a kind of banning of some uh, mercury or some really serious uh, uh, chemicals, but a lot of what's in those products that we use, we don't know what it will do. And often it also, they also contain microplastics, which, which harm the environment and can also cause endocrine disruption in humans. So, yeah, there's a lot of, of safety issues around cosmetics. Yeah, yeah, intriguing. Could you, could you maybe share, because you said the use of chemicals during work and how important that is, could you maybe share uh, one or two stories uh, from the... the the stimulants chapter because I, I always find that I find that fascinating how uh, stimulants are used so useful and so useful are used in so many different circumstances and apparently over the uh, over the globe they're also used uh, at work yeah so that this is the chapter chapter six on chemical 21st seven and uh, we we had a separate category indeed on on this stimulant use because it was so common it was so common across all the sites where we were studying the chemical lives of young people um perhaps i was first alerted to the use of stimulants when one of the uh, chemical youth ethnographers dan Kumps, who 
who was doing a research master with us in Amsterdam came to me and said, listen, you have to look at chemical. He had heard about the project Chemical Youth. And he said, you have to have a look at what's going on in nightlife in Amsterdam because uh, it's not just that we use chemicals for fun. We have to use chemicals, and he was speaking about himself. He's a DJ. We have to use it to be able to work at night. Uh, so this is the way I did a lot of the case studies for, for the project. I said, well, why don't you examine this? So very often this, the studies were done by students who themselves were confronting a certain issue. And so he had a look at the use of, of chemical stimulants in night, nightlife in Amsterdam and found that um, uh, people working in nightlife in Amsterdam had their, each of them had their own strategy to be able to stay awake, <laughs> using vodka or using Red Bull uh, um, or using some, some uh, stimulant, using cocaine, some stimulants. Everybody had their own way of doing it, but they needed to stay awake. And then about Dan Camps, who was one of my chemical youth ethnographers, yeah. who himself is a DJ, and he wanted to look at the use of stimulants in nightlife work in Amsterdam. And uh, he found out that young people working as bartenders or as disc jockeys in nightlife each have their own strategy of staying awake long hours. So they use energy drinks, they use sometimes vodka, Bartenders can't become too drunk, so then they, they use some uh, maybe cocaine behind the bar. It's not supposed to happen, but it happens in order to be able to stay alert for long hours working at night. And then the problem is when they go back home, they're still awake, so they need to do other things in order to sleep. So they maybe smoke a joint. And uh, another issue is that when they've worked a couple of nights, usually over the weekend, Often they go back to studying, for example, during the week, and then they have to change their whole uh, uh, sleeping rhythm again, which can be uh, quite difficult to, to do. It's like having a jet lag um, every week. And Dan also went into the, the, the health consequences of that. So if you, if you have jet lag every week, that's not good for your health. There's a lot of studies on... Um, these kind of biological rhythms that show that it's bad to distort your rhythm. Another case study in terms of stimulants uh, that I describe in the book is how at construction sites in, in Indonesia, in Makassar, uh, construction workers are, are given energy drinks for very cheap, uh, very cheap prices in order to, to keep the stamina to work really long hours, to work 12-hour shifts. And these energy drinks have very high levels of caffeine compared to what's available in, in the Netherlands. And, and that's bad for uh, cardio, that can cause cardiovascular uh, disorders. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of case studies on, on stimulant use in the book. Yeah, the stories about the energy drink in, in, in Makassar, I found them. I mean, I, I do enjoy a cup of coffee every, every now and then. But uh, just reading their their stories already gave my gave me palpitations. Yes, yeah. yeah, and they actually, and they actually experience that. But of course, you know, we know that if we drink uh, a lot of coffee, we kind of become addicted to it. So they are also addicted to these high levels of caffeine consumption through these energy drinks, which are actually marketed also very aggressively in Indonesia and the Philippines. Energy drinks are uh, have very strong marketing campaigns. Yeah. 
I think um, that's also one of the kind of contributions of the book, maybe in terms of, of drug use studies, is that we show how these kind of everyday mundane practices can also cause harm. So uh, in their connectivity, it's not just specific categories of drugs that are a problem. Um, yeah, they use too, using too much caffeine, even though everybody drinks coffee, can also be a problem. Yeah, agreed. And, and that's the hard thing that you find throughout the chapters, that there is, of course, there is a degree of peer-to-peer harm reduction possible. Like you can share experiences of, of I don't know, contaminated narcotics or... If you have too much coffee, you 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 look you look like a zombie or or something like this. But these are always, for instance, if you go in the online forums, most of the times these are really short-term um, risk risk aversion strategies and stories. Whereas um, with smoking, for instance, I think that that might be a prime example. Like the the, the negative consequences, they, they only come up after years and years of continuous use. Yeah. And and th- this is of course something that cannot be done peer to peer. It is very hard to do peer to peer. Yeah, the slow toxicities. Um, yes, when I when I kind of had finished writing the different chapters on different kind of chemical uses. Uh, in the concluding chapter, I, I came to that point of the kind of, I called it the entangled and slow toxicities of these chemicals. And you're so right. So that the young people in communicating with each other face-to-face and online, they definitely pick up kind of acute effects of chemicals they take. And and there's some kind of mitigation of harm there because they're aware, they, they discuss it and they adjust maybe the dosage or they try out something else. But the longer term, slower toxicities are just not so apparent to them and are also, except for kind of uh, illicit drugs, but for most chemicals, are not brought to their attention. So they're not told about endocrine disruption. They're not told about uh, the health risks of continuous use of energy drinks uh, or uh, uh, and e-cigarettes even are presented as safer than ordinary cigarettes, though mostly they also contain nicotine. So there's a lot of lack of informing of young people of, of the long-term risks. And yeah, because of that, there's a lot of uh, toxicity that, that they don't act on. Yeah, that's, that's sort of unsettling. Mm. Maybe, maybe um, because I'm I'm getting towards the the end of my questions. Reading reading your descriptions, I was very much impressed by the by the absence of judgment about the different chemical practices, and of course that is your job as an ethnographer. Um, towards the end of the book, as you say, you you do, however, formulate some paths and suggestions for improvement, thinking about uh, harm reduction from below and from from above uh, to mitigate these harms and maximize the benefits of what these these youths uh, smoke and take and smear. What would you say um, might be done beyond beyond perhaps improved regulation across countries and across chemical categories? What might be maybe done by us as citizens or as 
practitioners or as listeners to make these chemical practices for youths safer? Mm, thank you. That's a really important question. Yeah, so in the book, I, I end on the tone that uh, we should recognize that <clears throat> young people are mitigating harm within their own kind of realms of experience and that um, governing agencies should find a way of... <clears throat> Sorry, just take a bit of tea. <laughs> Go ahead. Herbal tea. <laughs> that um, uh, regulators should find a way in which they can strengthen or enable that tendency towards the mitigation of harm. Um, and then at the same time, I point to all the kind of less visible toxicities uh, that are not enough on the radar screen for these young people. Um, I guess maybe we, we, could elaborate, we could have elaborated that more in the book, but one way in which harm reduction from below could be strengthened is by using the same... Um, uh, mechanisms through which young people exchange experiences on, on the chemicals that they're using to inject discussions on, on these slower toxicities or long-term harms because uh, they are <laughs> kind of living towards the future and young people want to, they have aspirations and they, they want to get on in life so they, they definitely don't want to do things that are not good for their health in the long run. And the blockage now is that uh, there's not enough sharing of information on those aspects. And I guess uh, online platforms, there are many online platforms where young people share uh, information on, on MDMA or ecstasy or all kinds of drugs. Uh, you could have similar online platforms on the other chemicals they're using. I'm not sure if something like that exists yet on e-cigarettes. I, 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 I described in the book how for e-cigarettes, the problem is that the positives of e-cigarettes get amplified because the companies use social media and ambassadors to promote the positives of e-cigarettes. And I guess you could use the same mechanisms through social media to, to share more of the concerns uh, about different categories of chemicals, but there is some collaborative, collective concern about endocrine disruption that's out there, that's to do with, you know, the, the effects of chemicals in cosmetics and in water that can affect uh, our endocrine systems, but we need much more of that, much more sharing of information on slow toxicities. Makes sense. I think that's a good, good note to, to conclude on, um, and I think it also it makes clear that despite the, the extensive uh, uh, exchange between youths, it, it's, it's never going to be just harm reduction professionals or just youths. It's, it, it's got to be a, a mix of, of, the, of the two to uh, ultimately um, uh, minimize, the, minimize the harms. Maybe, maybe um, Anita, before we, before we go, is there, I, well, I know that you are currently working on the, different book um, is this the the next thing that will be coming out or what what's ahead for you <laughs> thank you yeah what's ahead so um we ended the book on this note of needing to confront these slow and entangled 
chemical toxicities. And that's exactly what I'm working on now with uh, some of the chemical youth ethnographers. We're thinking through how we can do a project that um, examines how uh, people, and maybe not only young people, act in an uncertain world, in a toxic world. So what do they do? What can they do to mitigate the harms of, of chemicals that they face in their everyday lives? So perhaps where the chemical youth book, I hope, made very clear kind of how young people use chemicals to get on in life, how they use it to be able to work well, to be able to um, get the kind of gendered bodies that they want to have, to express the sexualities they want to achieve, um, to have energy, to feel good, to be creative. Um, the next project is looking more into, well, what is the consequence of uh, living in a chemical-infused world where it's, where it's not only the products we consume, but also the environment, the air, the water, the earth uh, on which we live that's affecting us chemically. It's a big challenge. That sounds very cool. That sounds like something for us to look, something practical for us to look forward to, I would say. Yeah, that will hopefully be the next step. Nice. We're, we're very committed to, to taking this on because it kind of came out of the former project. Yeah, figure. Well, Anita, thank you so much for your time. It's been, uh, it's been great. Um, who yeah. knows, we will be speaking about your next project in the future. And thank you also for the questions. They made me think. They're very, very helpful in thinking through the implications of this work. Thank you. Great. All right. Well, see you next time, Anita. Have a good day. All right. Bye-bye.